appreciate all you guys. Hey, we're going to um, we're going to start a new series. Oh, good morning, everyone. That's what you do. Runas, manners, Graham, manners. Um, welcome if you're new or visiting. My name's Graham. I'm the senior pastor here. We are about to start a um, a new series for the next four weeks before we jump into uh, Lent in the lead up to Easter. And just like that, I took us to the end of term one. Just like that. Wow. Because we're almost done with January, apparently. Wow. I'm still, I, I think our Christmas, our, is our Christmas tree still up? No, we put that away. We did put that away. So we are doing shaping life, shaping faith. Now, there's kind of two ways. This is very tricky. I'm just going to leave this here. We're going to talk about this later. But in terms of how you read this over the next four weeks, you can read it shaping life, shaping faith, or you can go shaping life, shaping faith. Ooh. So it works on a couple of levels. I'm just going to leave that there as a little teaser. And we're actually going to, um, we're going to start by reading Scripture together. I'm going to get Daniel to come on up and read to us from John. As he does this, as we go through this sermon, by all means, um, if you want to pray for anything, pray for our air conditioner. It's a mornings like this uh, when I'm reminded that we bought the air conditioner about 25 years ago after it had been decommissioned. From somewhere else. And we thought it'd get us through a couple of years, didn't we, Charles? And I think pretty much solely to both... Is Amrat here this morning? Amrat, who is... It's a testament to the genius of this man as an air conditioning uh, engineer and also, even more so, that God really loves him. (laughs) That it's still going. But pray this morning. Hot mornings like this morning, we can pray for the miracle that is our air conditioner. And thank God for it. Daniel, save us from this silliness. Um, We're going to read, actually I can put it up there, we're going to read together. Or you're going to read and we'll follow along, that'll be easier. John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Wonderful. Thank you, Daniel. Starting off. Yes, bigger cheer. Daniel, is this third year of uni coming up for you? That'll start sometime around June, I would imagine, with uh, uni students. I've got one in our house who's very much enjoying the prolonged break between the end of school. Do you remember, who remembers that end of school? I know some people here, someone's going to tell me they finished school and started work the next day, I know. But for those who went from school into uni, that break was magical. I'm just living, watching my son again go through that. Where, like, it's like life suspends, you have no responsibility whatsoever and you just every day it just there's no chores to do around the house apparently and no, sorry I'm just, no, that's not that's not that's not fair he's very helpful um anyway it's a great time hey um so we're going to talk about um and we'll see if you can kind of gather as we go along um how the the title of our series which we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks um uh fits into what we're doing here But just as we start with John, a couple of things, it's good to, you know, it's always good to understand the context of Scripture when we read. And and John 15 
is, um, is in the middle of a, like a discourse, a conversation with Jesus with his disciples. And it's right towards the end of his life. And what's, it's actually really important to sort of understand, I guess, what, or, or try and imagine what could have been going on for Jesus and the disciples in that room. Um, it's always a little bit fraught to imagine what was going on in Jesus' head and heart. But what we do know is that because it's right near the end of his life, and it's, you know, it's most commonly credited this is the, the, at the Last Supper, Jesus has this awareness of these, these brothers, these people he spent three years with, that he's about to leave them. So Jesus has got the tension point of this very intimate setting with his disciples and knowing he's about to leave them and leave them in a world that is hostile to what they've started. They've started this journey, and the 12 in particular, and the, you know, there's probably a few more associated that are brought in with Jesus is Lord. He's about to leave them in a world that's hostile and will be very hostile to that faith. And at the same time, Jesus is also conscious of this cosmic thing that's going on, that he came, that, that they're, he's leaving them to carry on the work that he started of demonstrating and declaring the good news of the kingdom of God. That, that was really the, 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 the um, heaven-sent mission that he was sent on. And so as he speaks, he's speaking to his disciples, and this is where it's important in these chapters, this classic thing where um, he's not speaking directly to us, but he's certainly speaking for us as disciples. So we lean into this because he's talking about the nature of faith and discipleship. Um, and it's working at a very intimate level, but also with this idea that they are continuing this movement that began where they're going to go into the world to declare and demonstrate. So remember, the, the mission, the good news of the kingdom of God started with Jesus quoting Isaiah in Luke 4 and saying, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me to declare good news to the poor. And he goes and talks about some very, not very practical, real things. Good news to the poor, sight to the blind, release for oppression so when we think about the task the mission they're not just going out to be speakers it's declaring and demonstrating because that's what Jesus did to declare and demonstrate that it's good news so that's what's going on here and like so many other times Jesus reaches for um, a metaphor a picture that's from uh, from creation He's reaching, and actually it's a, it's a very agricultural one. And so here I am again as probably the worst gardener in the world, certainly the worst one in the room, um, to help you understand, uh, you know, to, to put on display my absolute lack of knowledge about things agricultural. But time and time again, we see in Scripture, particularly in the life of Jesus, but also in the Old Testament and into the New Testament, where the nature of life, faith, God, what it is to be human, is put across in very agricultural pictures or, or um, pictures of metaphors from creation. Now, there's kind of an obvious point here was, well, that's what, that was the common point. It was an agricultural economy. Um, every now and then you read translations or you might hear people who kind of update passages of scriptures and they might say oh the kingdom of God's like a software program or something something to make it more contemporary and there's value in doing that um to because it's more of a touch point but I want to encourage you towards the idea that actually what's going on here when when scripture is unpacking uh, and drawing us into think natures of uh, things of creation 
or commonly it's like about a shepherd or it's a farmer or it's a gardener, that it's actually also because just like the artist cannot help but leave a, uh, an impression of themselves in the art, that in creation we have first order principles where it's where God reveals as the creator so much of himself and, and where perhaps an artist might look to try and hide that at times and diminish that. The Lord of the universe, the creator of the universe, is not trying to do that. And so we see so much revealed of the nature of God and what it is to be human and the, and the relationship is revealed in these first order things. And so it's good for us to, to lean into that. And certainly here, you can see Jesus is saying, um, he's referring to him. So earlier in this passage, he, he cites God as the, as, the, as the gardener. He's the vine. And the point is saying, if you, if you, you, to be my disciple, you've got to remain connected. So we get this picture that even a dud gardener like me can understand, like that there's something going in. Jesus is the source of all good things. And flourishing in life is about remaining connected. And so we get this promise here that if you remain if you remain in me and my words remain in you ask whatever you want and you'll do uh, and it will be done for you it talks about bearing fruit if you remain in me you will bear fruit flourish and so that's the encouragement if you remain in me you will bear much fruit I'm always and if you've been around for a while you'll you'll know that we're often when we talk about uh, understanding Scripture, and particularly these, these uh, narratives of being a gardener, or um, the, uh, you know, when Je- like here, when Jesus is unpacking this sort of agricultural narrative, it's really important to remember that it's not just a casual kind of example that Jesus is throwing out. He's actually calling us back to understand the very nature of how we were created. So, so often, and for me in this, it goes back to Genesis. There is a comp, there's like a, a partnership. Je- Jesus is saying, okay, to be my disciple, stay connected. There's a, he's talking about a relationship, remaining in me. And um, if we go right back to Genesis, in Genesis 1, end of, this is the sixth day of creation. So, God's gone through and in this, in the creation narrative, which reveals what is good. What is God's picture of good? This is where God gets to demonstrate what is right and the way things should be before any outside interference. It's just all the fullest expression of the Creator God. And so we have this almost poetic, and it is, it's written in the form of sort of poetry. It's got repetition. And he goes through creates. He says, it's good, it's good, it's good. This is the way it's meant to be. And on the sixth day, we see that God creates the first human um, Adam mankind and it says it gives instructions again there's uh, directions here be fruitful and multiply so we hear and we see an echo here that we pick up with an echo that we pick up in in John be fruitful and multiply fill the earth and govern it reign over the fish of the sea the birds of the sky all the animals that scurry along the ground then God said, look, I've given, I have given you, take note of that, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I've given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the animals 
the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. And this is what happened. God looked over all he had made and he saw that it was very good. The pattern breaks. He goes, good, 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 good. This is very good. And it's like he's, he's completed. This is the way it's meant to be. And in here, what we need to take note is that Adam, man, is given, is part of creation, but is given an authority, is given a responsibility, is given a job to do. It does, it's not as clear here in terms of um, uh, a, a job, but it says fill the earth and govern it. That word has been contested and, and interpreted a lot of ways over the years. But there's a sense of authority. Now, biblical authority always comes matched with responsibility and care. Our experience of authority and why we might want to um, perhaps shudder at some of the words, um, that word sometimes gets rendered as dominion. And that's been used at times to justify authority with no um, care or responsibility. Um, we experience authority, when we experience authority without care and without responsibility, we shrink back from it. And so sometimes in this language, in our day, we shrink back from it. But it's important to understand it always comes with a biblical authority, comes with a sense of responsibility and care and love. And so there's, there's, there is this role that we get given uh, in the order of things to say that we are partnering with God. And this is the thing I want you to note here. We're picking up this. That actually the invitation in John 15 to remain in God is the invitation echoed from Genesis to say we're invited into a partnership where what you do, where what you do and what we does matter. No, my grandma was right there. English teacher. How would I say that better? Okay, it's boring already. Whatever. <laughs> I don't care that much. What we do matters, right? It's consequential. Theologians call it human agency. It is set up remembering that God has said, this is very good. So we are given, and in case we miss it, in, in, in Genesis 2, it's really clear where more specifically it's talking about the Garden of Eden. It says, the Lord God placed man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. To be human is to take responsibility for the earth. It is to care and to tend. The, to be uh, human is to be a gardener. And this is why we see through the arc of Scripture, it continues to lean into metaphors. If you think of all of the classic Scriptures and Psalms, um, it's about being a shepherd or it's about being um, tending to you know, cattle or it's about being a gardener, or it's about being in a vineyard. And that is because it harks back to this call here that there is a responsibility that we have to tend to things. And I, I think it's really good for me personally in sort of my leadership experience and um, to continue to, to think about leadership, and we've all got leadership responsibilities in different areas, as being a gardener because... Gardeners, farmers, whoever, um, again, I'm way outside my comfort zone here. But there are things when you're gardening that are your responsibility that to do, and then there's things you can't do anything about, right? So a, a good gardener, we've got a bunch here, 
you tend to the environment. You shape, you take the weeds away, you make sure the, the, um, the dirt stuff is kind of chopped up. What's that called? Cultivated. I'm doing well. I'm doing really well. You know, you, you water it. It's about actually creating the environment, right? That's really what it's about. Think about parenting or, or actually a relationship, really. You're wanting something to flourish. What you're doing is creating, it's the environment. There's some things in your, if, uh, you know, this, this comes as a shock to parents at some stage along the line. There's some things you have no control over with your children. You're just responsible for shaping the environment for who they are to flourish. Is that not gardening? There's some things you can't do. The craziest thing in the world, we talked about this before, is a gardener who does all of that, then stands over, plants the seed, then says, grow, 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 come on, come on. I mean, that's just going to be an exercise in frustration. Farmers don't get out in the paddock after they've tended to the fence and make sure they've been watered and fed and then stand beside the cow and say, come on, I reckon you've got another five kilograms in you this week. Come on. They just know. There's a part, and again, this is why it's great as a leadership principle, there's a time for you to just stand back and there's some things you can't do. And you discern what is ours to do and what is God's. But we are invited into, and uh, we're called co-laborers with Christ. There is something to do. That's important because John 15, there's a way you can read John 15 and other scriptures similar to it that sounds really spiritual, that goes something like this. I'm going to remain in Christ. I, 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 I dare not step outside until I hear God tell me something really specific because apart from God, I can't do anything. So I'm just going to wait. I'm not going to look to do anything. I, I'm not going to, you know, step out and sort of get involved in any ministry or do anything until I get a very specific, until I know God has told me because I've just got to remain. Um, uh Sometimes it gets hurt, and, and I'm not, I mean, hear me, there's ob- obviously there's a place in which we hear cl- uh, clearly and directively from the Lord. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm, my life's a product of that. But there's this thing where it's like, oh, we don't want to just do good things, we need to do God things. I'm not sure what people mean when they say that. Um, I, often it's, it, whereas actually we're invited in to participate. And there are bits that are ours, and there are bits that are God's. It's God's vine. And so that's this idea. Um, this idea here is the clearest I can think of. And I've been reflecting a lot about this. Um, now, I, I think for the longest time I called this a trestle, but it's actually a trellis, isn't it? Gardeners, help me out. What is a, it, what's a trestle? A table. That could work too. But this is a trellis. And so you see here the vine grows. And if the environment's right, it will, it will grow. But how the gardener has shaped the trellis shapes the vine, right? There's five very different trellises there. And there's a bit that God does, and there's a bit that the gardener does. And so when we think about this idea of shaping life and shaping faith, I, we've been thinking a lot, I'll talk a, a little bit more, but over the next few weeks, how will we shape our lives together? Because we take seriously that we have a responsibility when it comes to our lives together. This morning, I mostly want to talk about us individually, but we want to go on and talk about how do we shape our life as a community of faith together so that it shapes a faith that is fruitful for your you and your family, but our city, 
What should we do? Because we have a responsibility. It's, it's um, sub-biblical, maybe. Sub-biblical. I think I just came up with that. To just say, we're just going to turn up and pray until God directs us to do something. No, no, no. God's been clear enough. We're going to do some things and we've got some responsibility. But this is why it's so important to take seriously the, the Genesis 1 is because he's been really clear. He actually made it clear in the first chapter that you've got a responsibility. So step up to it. Be clear about that. But the question is for us, how do we shape a life that, in John 15 language, means that we remain and bear fruit? Because if we can make choices and shape it for us to remain and, and to shape our faith in a certain way, it means we can also make choices that shape it in the wrong way, right? That's, that's inherent in there. So how do we shape a life that shapes faith? Um, this took me into the wonderful rabbit hole and world that is online life coaching. Because there is a whole, I mean, you're probably aware of this, a whole industry. If I was to ask you, what is your life like? You would probably intuitively tell me about your week, right? What's, what's the, sh- if I asked you that question, what's the shape of your life? You would, you would start to tell me about the shape or the rhythm of your life on a daily basis, a weekly basis, or a monthly basis, whatever's most. That tends to be, how, that's the, that makes the shape of our life. And that's going to be shaped by what stage of life you're at, the shape of your family, your occupation, all sorts of things. And then a whole lot of other things that would shape your life that maybe when I asked you that question, you hadn't thought that much about. There are habits. And this is this space in this habit space that takes us into wonderful quotes like this. Now, Gretchen Rubin. Is anyone familiar with Gretchen Rubin? You are. So she is, she's apparently a guru. Okay, I don't know what that meant. Are you having a stroke? Or, no, okay. That was, all right. So she is, uh, she's um, a best-selling author um, and wrote a book called The Happiness Project. Um, And she said this, and I reckon it's pretty good. Habits are the invisible architecture of daily life. We repeat about 40% of our behavior almost daily. Wow. Uh, So our habits shape our existence and our future. If we change our habits, we change our lives. I don't need to go chapter and verse for you to go, yeah, that rings true. Like that's just an observation in life. This is what it's like. It's our habits. So the question is, if we're going to be intentional about shaping our life in a certain direction, it is about looking at our habits. This invisible architecture, well, that's directly pointing to that, isn't it? The idea of the vine would be that it grew to a point, and you can see it on the top right, where actually the structure disappears, and so it's only the vine. So it makes a, you know, it makes that shape. It's kind of the invisible structure that sits behind that. If we change our habits, we change our lives. Here's the crux question that I really um, want want to get you to reflect on, for, for us to reflect on, through a, a biblical lens. Um, for your life, but for our life together, how do we? How do you change habits? Because actually, that makes tr- that that rings true. But the real question: How do you change habits? Anyone here find it just really easy to change habits? The reason why the online world of uh, life coaching exists is because it's so jolly hard. 
Because behind that is an assumption, or you've got to have a starting point of, well, what are humans like? How do we form habits? You've got to actually quite inherently understand the nature of humans. I found this one online as well. Um, now, Lao Tzu is how I'm saying it. Might not be right. He's actually a, um, an ancient Taoist um, sort of philosopher from China from centuries ago. But interestingly, and I'm sure you would have heard or seen something like this before, your thoughts, they become words. Watch your words, they become actions. Actions become habits. Habits, character, watch your character becomes your destiny. The idea is it starts with the way you think, right? You've heard something like that before. The way to actually change habits is to replace bad thinking with good thinking. Kind of true. Actually, very interestingly, little side note, um, as I started searching, I, um, I then found the same quote attributed to Mahatma Gandhi. Here's the wonders. Here's the traps of why you need to be careful about going online to get your information. You need to go wide. Because... I mean, it had great cachet when it was like this 16th century Chinese Taoist person. Mahatma Gandhi, a little bit more contemporary, not, not as ancient wisdom. Then I also found it attributed to some bloke called Frank Jackson who lives in Australia and is alive now. It's like about 60. So just be careful when you go along. I, coincidentally, I thought this quote must be something like one of those formal suits where you can rent it out. So if you're online... And you see that. Actually, I just thought, well, why not? <laughs> so if you're, if you're trolling around the, the world, if you get to that part of the internet, online life coaching, you'll see me cited there. This assumes something. And actually, interestingly, that comes from an ancient... Eastern philosopher, because it's a very modern Western thought. In fact, this guy, Rene Descartes, who we've talked before, is considered to be, and I'm not going to talk much about him because there's a lot of people in the room who know a lot more and I could get into, it's like the gardening thing, I could get into real trouble here. But Descartes is kind of considered to be the, the, the father of the fourth, fourth run of the modern world, enlightenment. And this saying is, again, an, an, um, his quote here is, to say, to, to think is to be human. Who we are as human beings is thinking machines. And I came across all of this um, uh, sort of line of thinking by discovering actually someone else who I'll talk about in a moment who quoted this guy, Antonio Damasio, who took on Descartes sort of head on and said, no, that's not what it's like to be human. This guy's actually a neuroscientist and he works and I barely understand what he does, but it's sort of in the area of understanding how emotions get processed by the brain. But in that, he challenged Descartes. And really, the, the kind of whole enlightenment in the modern is like, we just, we are so good at thinking. We can think our way out of any problem. And the West is kind of founded by it. It, it has roots back to Greek and Roman philosophy, but it's really accelerated in the modern age. It is a very recent thought to be so impressed with how we think. And to think that we just need to get the right ideas. It's not a biblical thought. It's not an ancient thought. And rightly, Antonio Damasio had some suspicion. And he said, we're not thinking machines that feel. Rather, we are feeling machines that think. 
And this guy, and you've heard me and I think um, Josh before talk about this guy, um, J.K. A. Smith, he's an American philosopher, um, educational philosopher and um, theologian and a pastor. And he wrote a book, um, Desiring the Kingdom. He picks this up and he said, this is what it is to be human. We are lovers. We are shaped by our desires. We are shaped by what we love fundamentally to be human is to love and desire things and that sets the the trajectory of our life and he actually more recently um that that idea caught a hold so much that he sort of broke it down a little bit in a a less academic book called you are what you love i haven't read you are what you love i have read that desire in the kingdom and so if it's true that the shape of our life is shaped by the habits and the things we need to do to reflect on that. It's about what we love more than what we think. And actually, um, Smith says that the best way to understand the practice of the habits formed by pursuing what we love is liturgy. Because it's about what we worship, it's about what we value. And so he talks about the fact that the world has a liturgy there for you, saying, love these things. And this is where you start to go, ah, this sounds right. I I know what this feels like. The world has a liturgy to say, pursue these things, desire these things, and it shapes your life. And then in Scripture... God has a liturgy for your life. We, we often think of liturgy and we talk about that. And Josh is going to pick this up next week to talk about literally the pattern of our worship. But if we can just broaden out that idea of liturgy is the things we do over and over again which display what we love. So we use liturgy in a church to say we're going to worship this way and then this way and then this way. But think about your life as a liturgy that actually is about you pursuing. Think about your week. What does what you pursue each week, what you do as a habit each day or each week, what does that say about what you love? What are, what are those habits saying about what you value? I'm going to get the band to come up. Because that's what's shaping you. He says this, liturgies are the kind of love-shaping, heart-directing practices, habits and rhythms that shape you in ways that you might not be realising. Uh, this is, I mean, I've read that book a couple of times. I, it's one of those books I come back to and, and engage with this truth because I find it so confronting in the best way. Particularly if I'm, if I'm able to have the time and space and, to be honest, the emotional strength and courage and honesty to, be, to actually look at my life and say, I'm doing that a lot. Behind that, I'm pursuing this. That's actually driven by this desire. That's not a good desire. What should I be pursuing? It's the opportunity we get of a new year is to reflect. Is to maybe take down the trellis and go, that's going to shape that vine in a way that... And again, I understand here going into the metaphor there is there is actually like a a purpose beyond just aesthetics 
help me out here, gardeners, where you're using these trellises, it's actually about keeping healthy fruit, isn't it? It's, it's, there's a purpose to providing some structure to it that's about the fruitfulness as well. I mean, it kind of makes sense that if you've got a, a designated patch of the garden and you've let it run elsewhere, and again, I'm making it up. I need to stop talking about gardening. But you get the idea. There's an opportunity at this time of year and good for us to ask questions about how are we shaping our lives? What are the liturgy? What are the things we're pursuing that we're loving? Are they the right loves? We want to talk, Josh is going to pick it up and talk about when we gather together. That word liturgy is often used um, in more traditional um, contexts about what are the things we do together? What does that say we love? And are they the right things? Josh challenged us at the end of last year, and I appreciate this, when we were looking at the opportunity, you know, what we do on Sundays. And he said, well, what, what about if instead of actually shaping, there's so much conversation we have about on Sundays, how much time we got, and like, you know, if we do this for longer than that, people clearly don't, you know, won't like that. And we do this, we worship too long. And, and, and they're all really valid things. It's done with love. Josh, and it's all right for us to do that. Josh said, what if we thought about what should we be doing to shape resilient faith and start from there? Because actually maybe that's why everyone's turning up in the first place. What if we were brave enough to kind of reflect and think about what should we do? What aren't we doing that we actually love as a congregation? Like one of the things that we started doing last year was um, the, the Cornerstones on Mission where we just heard stories of people serving it. And, and this church loves that. We love the, the people and what they're doing, but we also love the idea that God's out of it. So that's, you know, we want to continue for that to be part of our liturgy because it's what we love and we, we also agree that it's what God loves. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, about what we do together. But some questions, maybe just for a moment. We're going to... We're just going to spend some time. We're going to do, um, we'll come back and do communion moment. But what are the liturgies, the regular habits, rhythms, and commitments that shape your life? Whew. What do these things say you really love? If the liturgies of your daily life are your trellis, how would you describe the shape of the vine you and God are growing, given that it's a partnership? Is it helping you? This is just a little sub. Is it helping you remain in Christ? Is it causing you to be fruitful? What areas aren't you fruitful in? How could it be different? That's the big one. That's very much a conversation for you to have prayerfully with God. It's not a judgment conversation. Again, it's about a desire, setting the trajectory of your heart towards God. What would that look like? We just spend a couple of minutes and then um, just maybe reflecting, praying on that, and then we'll come off and close off together. Thanks, Cameron. Can you just maybe sing that build that life, build that life? Good stuff. Sorry, Jack. We'll just keep those up there, mate. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. You're worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. 
above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever say, you're worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. As, as we finish this morning, we're going to invite you to um, come around the table, as it were, share communion together. Um, Jesus said, when you gather, as he actually said, as often as you gather, every time you gather, that we would partake, we would participate in this liturgy, in this practice of remembering him, of the wine and the bread, the cup and the broken bread. Because it's life-shaping. It reminds us uh, when we consider the cup of sacrifice and his death, his broken body. It reminds us of the shape of his life, a life of sacrifice, a life poured out for others. It reminds us who we are in God's eyes. It Firstly, reminds us who, who we are in reality, that we are broken, we're in need of a Savior, that we fall short, that we miss the mark. It reminds us of who we are. But it also reminds us of who and how God sees us, not as sinners deserving punishment, but of objects of grace worthy of love and it reminds us that we're meant to live out the shape of our life is meant to reflect the grace we receive on the other side of the cross it's a powerful thing it's no wonder that Jesus said in your liturgies so I encourage you in your own time we're, we're just going to um, you know, the band will continue to worship when you're ready to partake, partake. We've got um, Clem and Leanna down here in our prayer uh, team. If you want anyone to come alongside you to pray, by all means, come and do that. You can stay in worship for a while. After you're done, feel free to join us next door. The shape of our liturgy is to say there's good, good things to discuss. Fellowship's really important too. We love being together. That's important. So you can join us next door too. But we just, we'll, as we are in the practice of doing, just keeping this as a bit of an open space for people to do business with God. If you can respect that, that'd be great. When you're ready, by all means, move next door. Um, I'm looking, really looking forward to what God does in the next few weeks. There's a sense in which we're offering up the materials of our lives individually, perhaps your life in your household, your family, but also collectively together. We're offering up some sticks saying, Lord, help us build this trellis. Shape it so that we remain in you because apart from you 
just grows everywhere. We know we can't produce much fruit. But if we remain in you, your faithfulness will produce much fruit, will flourish. The people in our lives will flourish. Our community will flourish. We're just going to take seriously the the task of, of building that with God. Be blessed.